welcome to This Isn't Working. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Sean. Welcome to part two of Bullshit Jobs. Yes. So this week, we're just going to dive right in. Um, Let's do a quick recap of sort of what we discussed last week. Um, As we said, last week was a little bit more the first part of the book. Um, We talked about sort of uh, the impact of having a bullshit job on an individual. This week is going to focus more on the latter half of the book, uh, the impact of having a bullshit job on society and sort of the larger picture. So as a reminder, a bullshit job, as defined by the author David Graeber, is a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though, as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. He also talked about the types of bullshit jobs, which we spoke about last week, just to give a quick rundown. We had the flunkies, which are the yes men or the ass kissers, as we uh, so lovely, so lovingly describe them. <laughs> the goons, which are those aggressive, like enforcer, make it happen people. Duct tapers, which are the human beings that businesses hire to fix a glitch or some sort of issue with the organization. So these are the people who paper over problems. We have the box tickers, which are the people who uh, the organization hires to say that they're doing something when the organization's not actually doing that. And the taskmasters. So think middle management or strategic management. Like we talked last week, these are the people who assign nonsense tasks for people. Um, And then we also talked about the pros and cons of a bullshit job. There really aren't any pros, except if you can find one that doesn't really do any Mm -hmm. harm um, to yourself or to others, allows you to pursue your own passions, has some social interaction, those types of things. And then the cons, there were, of course, a a litany of of challenges with those. We have a lot on our outline, so we're just going to dive right in. Let's see. So first, we're going to chat a little bit about the proliferation proliferation of bullshit jobs (laughs) this is how graber describes it not us he we're using his word here the proliferation thing so watch us stumble over that for the next 45 (laughs) minutes (laughs) i mean this this section is really about like why why are there so many bullshit jobs and he breaks it down onto these different levels and so the individual level is that people need money they have to do something (laughs) they can't just not work um so as long as there's people to take these jobs, that almost incentivizes different businesses to keep cranking them out. Right, because there's a demand for them. People need to earn a living and companies will continue to employ people even if they don't really have anything for them to be doing in a meaningful way. And then at the social and economic level, capitalism we kind of see as, as the big baddie. I liked this quote from Graeber. Quote, economies around the world have increasingly become vast engines for producing nonsense. I think that's a good way to summarize kind of how bullshit jobs are proliferated on the social and economic level. Like they just were just filling in gaps, basically. Think about all the pointless products that we have. Like I always go back to the pet rock. That guy became like a millionaire. Yes, that's a great example. So if there's all these nonsense products it follows that there will also be nonsense jobs as well, even if they are in you know various industries. But listen, can you talk about the other quote you pulled out? Because I like this one as well. Yes. And so also related to capitalism, Graeber's words again, quote, part of the reason no one has noticed is that people simply refuse to believe that capitalism could produce such results, end quote. So this kind of speaks to the fact that like people really hold capitalism up on a pedestal and it kind of allows capitalism to be 
like an ever-developing solution. The market will yes, solve it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So the the theory is that, or the idea is that it can't be wrong because it's happening under capitalism, basically. Right. How do, How is the solution part of right, the problem? Right, exactly. And that's exactly what this is here. He also talks about the, and he doesn't reference these as much because they're not as relevant anymore, but the social engineering aspect of um, economies. So he specifically talks about the Soviet Union and communist China. Obviously, there's no more Soviet Union. China is really market-based anyways, so it's not the best example anymore. I guess the closest would maybe be like a North Korea type example. Yeah, probably. Where it's just jobs for jobs' sake. Like you're just assigned a function and then you carry it out. Um, so he does talk about the, that a little bit, but he doesn't highlight it quite as much just because it's not really relevant. Yeah, it's not There's no current. full-on communist governments, really. So yeah, yeah, it's a very outdated example. But you can definitely think back to the Soviet Union because they absolutely just cranked out nonsense jobs just so everyone had the illusion of full employment. Um, so those are two of the reasons. Like the, the economic systems that we live in pr- like promote bullshit jobs is what he said right yeah so the way that kind of we're set up almost necessitates a certain number of bullshit jobs just to just to exist i guess i yeah i guess you can describe it that way but it's just i don't know i always think back like what if the soviet union were around what would it look like in 2022 not good is the short yeah. answer i mean they have like soviet union light in russia right now but i'm just trying to think of what kinds of jobs the modern Soviet Union would be assigning to people given the advent of like smartphones and the internet. Yeah, it would have to be a lot more like knowledge based because even when the Soviet Union was around, there was a lot of like physical labor that they were right. assigning. Yeah, or but I feel like there were a lot of like box tickets as well. Yeah. Like, something that wasn't really happened, but it was this person's job to tick a box right. about it, you know, kind of thing. Whereas capitalism, I feel like it doesn't, you know, there's not just one. It it creates all types equally, whereas like a socially engineered form of government economic system may push people to be like box tickers or I don't know. I'm trying to think or maybe like a taskmaster as well. Probably some good. Okay, so maybe there are a lot of a lot of these people sort of fixed. I just can't see a lot of duct tapers. So that's the um, the aspect of the social and economic level. But then he also mentions that there's cultural and political levels um, to the proliferation of bullshit jobs. I remember when we were playing this episode, you kind of called out a couple of good examples as well for this. But basically, there's like from a political level, sometimes there's this concept and he's like, you might start getting down to a conspiracy theory level, you know, hole here. But sometimes people think like, well, it's actually in the he, he gave this example. It's actually there's the idea that it's not always in the best interest of governments to solve homelessness for X, Y, Z reason. So he, what he's saying is that it's not in our government's best interest to eliminate bullshit jobs. He gave a more concrete example. This is from like more like 10 or so. It was during the Obama presidency. So you, when he, somebody asked President Obama at the time, like a single payer healthcare plan, and his response was it would eliminate millions of jobs. Like what would we do for all the people who work at like Blue Cross Blue Shield right. or Aetna and all these companies and that sort of stuff. So the thinking is that even though the system would be more efficient, like a single hair payer healthcare system would generally be more efficient, it would be counterintuitive, so to speak, because it eliminates all these jobs. So in that case, it's not in the government's best interest to eliminate a system that proliferates bullshit jobs. Yes, especially once they're so big, like the healthcare industry, you know, that 
Right. Yeah. They're like behemoths. Yeah. They're <laughs> massive and they employ, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people more possibly. I'm not great at estimating, but yeah, it would create new problems in that way because then you would have a whole like sector of people whose jobs would disappear the and, job, yeah. right. and then it would be like, well, how many of those could go do something else or how many might need retraining or whatever? Like, it's yeah, just a yeah. bigger problem to solve, I think, sometimes than people appreciate. But that is still extremely problematic because obviously it would be extremely beneficial to have a more functional healthcare system. Like it would save lives. It would eliminate a lot of medical debt, which is a huge problem in this country. But there is that like counterintuitive aspect to it. And again, this can get really um conspiracy theory e yeah because then he had a lot of conspiracy theory examples where you're like well actually the government is trying to keep people homeless for xyz reason and it just sounds like you're on a q anon like message board right and, and that's not crazy that's not what we're yeah. doing that's not what we're saying but there is right a, <laughs> yeah. um there are these as we're saying cultural and political levels to the proliferation I'm I'm never going to be able to say this apparently the proliferation <laughs> of bullshit jobs. It's not even like we're recording a little later than we normally do too, so I can't even be like, oh, it's early. Like it's not early. I've been up for hours. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm just yeah, tripping over my words. <laughs> um, another example that really spoke to us in particular was uh, the U.S higher education system that he called out, which we um, very much enjoyed, of course, as we spend a lot of time doing that ourselves. Um, but the example of um, proliferation of bullshit jobs got at that time for U.S. universities <laughs> was that the administrative side of things. So universities have, you know, basically staff and faculty in terms of their employees. Faculty, of course, are the professors, those who do the research, teach the classes, things like that. And then staff are, you know, administrative. They're in the registrar. They're in the bursar's office. Increasingly, I think that there are a lot of instances of overlap for that. But those are the basic kind of divisions that currently exist. And he talks about how the staff side of things have wrested control from faculty because previously faculty were in charge. It was, you know, their classes, their courses, their expertise uh, that really set up the universities as a place of learning, which was the primary goal, you know, for the education of, you know, the next generation. Now faculty are made to be more administrative and really the staff are largely in charge of how things flow day to day. Typically faculty want to, like they want to spend their time teaching and or researching depending on their level of interest in that side of things, but they're really made to do a lot of administrative work to keep a lot of the staff jobs relevant in a way and to like place outsized importance on the administrative side of things and i mean we saw that every day ourselves oh yeah at, you know, at a university and then the most egregious example is that um often the highest paid public servant in any given state in the u.s is a large university is a large public institutions football coach american football of course which is it just sort of speaks to how things have gotten so twisted in higher ed that the highest paid individual in the state would be the head of an athletic team instead of like a decorated faculty member who is an absolute expert in their field like 
you know, a leading researcher has won awards. Like those people exist in every state at these big universities as well. And they don't get nearly the accolades that a football coach does. It goes back to this like values sort of thing that he talking about throughout the book well really towards these later chapters but we'll talk about that in more detail but keep this example in mind the other piece of this as well is that um he refers to it as managerial feudalism we spent a lot of time talking about this section because there were a lot of like more abstract examples he was giving or like ways that he was trying to describe relatively simple things but we got through it the second half of the book is a little more academic in nature, we had decided, rather than more conversational as the first half. But anyways, with regards to this man- managerial feudalism, he was saying that there's been a proliferation of white-collar roles in particular, as opposed to investments in actual capitalism. And this is just a, an example of industrialization more broadly, particularly in the 60s and 70s, businesses thought it would improve efficiencies to have more white collar staff and managerial type roles. The taskmasters, the thought process would be like, oh, if we have more people pushing efficiency, then it'll be more ultimately efficient. lead to yeah. efficiency. It didn't. They didn't invest in capital properly. They didn't invest in the people who run the, the, the machinery and like that type of capital. One thing that I wanted to call in particular is that Graeber was pretty clear that this cuts across different industries. So he particularly included like the creative industries and higher ed where he's like everybody has an assistant or an associate dean type role. And you would think in theory that these types of industries would be more immune to that type because it's supposed to be all this like critical thinking and, you know, all this type of stuff, but not at all, not really at all is, is, is how that worked out. <laughs> yeah. And he, we've got a couple of quotes here as well that we pulled. Mm-hmm. So here's one uh, quote. Pointless levels of managerial hierarchy staffed by men and women with elaborate titles, fluent in corporate jargon, but who have either no firsthand experience of what it's like to actually do the work they are supposed to be managing. And then he goes on. But we pulled that part of the quote in particular because... (laughs) Because we know that person. Yes, we have worked (laughs) for that person. We know that person. We have talked about that person many, many times on this very podcast. Yeah. But it just kind of summarizes the idea of the the taskmaster, the unnecessary person who, again, like, right. when they so just another layer are of out of the office, the office functions just as well, if not better, because they're not interfering with things right. that they don't understand. We've spoken about that. It was, um, you know, right... Well, was it when you had started that our, one of our supervisors was out on a medical yes, leave? Yes, it was, um, was it? right before I started. It was during my interview process. Yeah, the office never ran so smoothly, like that whole month, because my a colleague, and I wasn't in the office at that time, but we shared a, like a physical office space, but I was still working in a different office. So our colleague who we've spoken about, who trained you mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff, she was running the office for that month and it never ran so like she was pulling her hair out, but it never ran so smoothly. Yeah, you know, like just from an outsider looking yeah. in. So I'm sure everybody has has had or maybe currently has either a manager or some type of supervisor who has no idea what your work is and couldn't do it if they were dropped into it and is really just kind of pointless. That really reminds me of and I know that we've talked specifically about this example um on the pod before. But do you remember when the pandemic first hit and we were working from home and she wanted us to email her every morning with what we planned to do for the day and yes. then every yes. afternoon with what we had done and what we planned to do the next day, which was 
not only extremely tedious and absolutely unnecessary, but just so demonstrative of her lack of understanding of what it is that we were doing because she couldn't just say to if if it I, I forget if she just like absolutely did not understand how to manage people. Well, I will say she absolutely did not understand how to manage people. She especially did not understand how to manage people <laughs> remotely. But I don't know if it was that right. alone yes. that she herself was like, this is the way to do this. Or if someone above her was asking for that information and she didn't know how to answer it because she didn't know what we did. So I'm not sure where the origin of that request came from, I guess is what I'm saying. My assumption is that she was trying to be proactive because she assumed somebody would ask her. That's probably true. She lived in fear a lot. One is because she would... Do you remember when she would... uh, She did this a couple times, like, ask us to write a summary of our jobs? Yes, yeah. Like, isn't this why we have a job I had to do that many times. (laughs) Which is a summary of our... Which took away from time that I could have been actually working on things that I needed to do because, as we've said, I was doing the work of, like, two and a half people. Is she couldn't synthesize what our job description was because they were like one to two pages max. Right. You know, like, um, so there was that. But I think because this was also around the time when they were clearly thinking layoffs because do you remember when our new supervisor had to like essentially justify all of our existences? Yes, that was a fun time. <laughs> yeah, it feel, felt great. But yeah, we we have worked for that person is the, the short version. Yeah, of that. managerial feudalism as a phrase that he kept using and referring to felt to me just so apt. Like I read those words and immediately I was like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I yeah, I've I've been there. I've worked for that. I've been in this feudal system. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you had also pulled out this other example, the voluntold example. Yes. So I'm sure that all of our listeners understand the concept of being voluntold. But in case this is your first Mm -hmm. time hearing it, the idea is that you are like forced to volunteer for something, which is oxymoronic because a volunteer should be they should be doing things of their own choice. That's the whole crux of what a volunteer is but i'm sure that many people have also experienced being voluntold to participate in some committee or join some working group or something like that i know that i have been voluntold many times yeah half half our job was just being that's true yeah (laughs) yeah that's if you're unsure if you've ever been voluntold to do something if it's ever been coded in language like this is a great learning opportunity or think about the professional growth you'll have or this will look great on your resume you've been voluntold yep. to do something <laughs> odds are pretty good that you have experienced yeah. this yeah. icky phenomenon also i like hate myself for having said voluntold like 30 times just now so i just yeah. want to make that clear that i'm like cringing at myself at this moment uh but massive amounts of resources are spent uh by employers forcing employees to volunteer so that companies can be awarded uh, sort of like meaningless workplace accolades. Um, For example, he he uses a specific example of having a like an award issued by some probably bullshit jobs filled entity of being like the best place to work in this region or this industry or this state or whatever. And part of how 
those awards are given or measured or part of the competition is if the organization does charity work or it's based on their charitable efforts and things like that. So the idea is like, oh, they get their employees involved in the community. Therefore, that's a great feature. People can feel like they're giving back. And the more they do that, uh, the higher that part of their, I don't know, like best place report card is. And so these organizations that have been given the best place to work award, their volunteer work is actually voluntold work. So they don't give time and space for people to take on their own interests. And uh, we've talked about like volunteer time off where you could take some time to... Yeah, that's starting to creep up more as being a benefit that that is offered. Yeah. Yeah, so instead of having more of those kinds of things... People in HR exist specifically to, like, find charitable events or organizations that they can work with that they can force their employees to take part in so that they can get higher marks on this part of their, you know, review so that they can earn the best place to work award so that more people will want to work there. But it's all a complete farce. Yeah, think about how many pieces and, uh, like, so many pieces to, to get through that. It's just... Like you have to, as you were talking, I felt like my eyes were glazing over <laughs> because it's just so, it's, it's such a nonsensical process. Yeah, because they're, and so that's like, just imagine an organization and their HR and then their HR has like a charitable efforts team, like a subcommittee or something right. that people are probably voluntold to be on. And then those, I don't know, depending on the organization, maybe two to 10 people, depending on how large the organization is, their entire job exists just to find these efforts to make employees participate in so that they can get an award that they are falsely earning so that more people will want to work in the bullshit jobs that they've created for taskmasters, box tickers, etc. It exists only to keep itself going. Yeah, it really does. And he kind of wraps all of this by saying that our society is currently built to support this bullshit jobs, these functions. I mean, think about the amount of time. So like he refers to as modern industrializer information based society. And what jumped out to me was information based because now these little voluntold committees can sit and Google their way into all these different awards by obscure magazine or whatever. And so because people have more access to more information more things are automated, you know, just the way that our society's developed, again, with the advent of the internet, smartphones, all of those types of things. Now, society's just built to support bullshit jobs. I mean, think about how easy it is for some people, especially like remote workers, to just have two jobs. I don't know if you've seen any of those types of articles where it's like, so-and-so is working two full-time jobs at two full-time salaries, and they somehow made that work in their normal 40-hour week. I think about that a lot because, I mean, I work 40 hours per week and I just think about people who work 60 or 80 and like I still make more, you know, um, or people who work multiple jobs, particularly if they're quote unquote, I don't like describing this way, but low skill jobs. Um, so think food service, those types of things. I don't think that's an accurate way to describe those types of roles because I've worked in the restaurant industry as an example. And I know people that you like, it requires a lot of skill, perhaps like all jobs require skills, personality except for, you know, the bullshit yes. jobs. Those, those don't really require anything. Although they're, uh, 
we talked last week also about how a lot of times people with a bullshit job spend a lot of time trying to like justify their own existence. And I think that there is some skill in that. But if you're in a truly bullshit job um, that like you're not trying to proliferate yourself, um, there's really no skill necessary. No, and bullshit jobs don't discriminate in that way. So like you could have a high school education or you could have a PhD and still like, there's no, you know, education quote unquote skill level requirement for a bullshit job. I mean, obviously the job description might say you need three to five years in a bachelor's degree or something, but there's no like bullshit jobs aren't exclusive to one type of education level. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes. Or skill level. Exactly. Um, so why is society not objecting to these bullshit jobs? And it's because of what we just said, but we'll expand upon that. It's built this way. They're not objecting because this is how society is designed now. And this is the section that really tripped me up. So I'm going to let Tiffany run with it because she had a pretty apt explanation <laughs> for the meaning of value. Basically, we have no real accurate measure of value. Tiffany, please explain because I will trip all over this section. That's all right. <laughs> so we talked uh, in the last episode and one of the themes that kind of runs through the book is the concept of value versus values. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. value is like economic worth. Values are like what we actually, what's important to you in your life, to society as a whole versus like. From like a non-economic yes, perspective like what, generally. Something you can't really put a number on, basically. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually what he said. By definition, those types of values, not quote unquote non-economic values, cannot be compared to anything else, which is what makes them value, but they have no inherent economic value. And this is what I'm talking about with the book getting a bit more academic in this regard, because this is why I tripped over this section. Yeah, and this is, (laughs) uh, full disclosure, this, it took us a lot longer to read these three chapters, I think, than the entire first four <laughs> right yeah because it was a yes. little bit more dense it's still really interesting and fascinating and he still lays it out in a really it is. accessible way it just is a little bit you'll just want to make sure you're awake and caffeinated and have a couple hours set aside when you go into these right. chapters <laughs> do not recommend reading like right before bed <laughs> but he he met he mentions that so economists can measure utility quote unquote which is what something of economic value has but there's no real way to measure any other type of value so he starts a lot of comparison work in this so this part i got because i thought it was funny um but he's talking about social value versus economic value and um he gives an example of like american liberals buying fair trade coffee like yeah you can put your money sort of where your mouth is, but it doesn't really change anything meaningful um, and can still result in the proliferation of bullshit jobs. So what he's saying is that you can spend your money in intelligent ways and still not have really any meaningful effect on the proliferation of bullshit jobs. So as a society, again, because it's set up to, um, you know, proliferate these bullshit jobs, we got to think of a different perpetuate? Word proliferate, uh, perpetuate these both types of bullshit jobs. Um, you know, you can't spend your way into the bullshitizing society. That was a terrible description, but I hope it makes sense. I think so. And he, so that's um, a good example of sort of the social value versus economic value. Um, but he also talks about how this value values scenario plays out in the uh, morality of work that we talked about before, 
where there's an inverse relationship of social value to economic compensation in work like teaching, healthcare. These are things that, except for doctors, he calls out specifically because doctors um, have high social value and they also receive high um, economic compensation. I think that was the only example he pulled out very specifically, but otherwise people like nurses, aides, and so. things like, like you've talked about that your uncle right. needs, like they don't make great money, but the value that they provide to society is, you can't really put a number on it, unfortunately, because it, it, it saves someone's life. It helps them function day to day. Same with teaching, you know, it, yes, teachers are yeah. responsible for pull that out, molding yeah the generations that come next, you know, teaching them how to care, how to, you know, function in society, the education that they need to make it in this world. They are with children in a lot of cases in terms of waking hours as much as if not more than their own parents or at-home caregivers. And yet they are some of the lowest paid jobs in our country for sure. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, generally true. I think I would say globally teachers aren't always paid exceptionally well, but yeah, it's particularly stark in, in the U.S., especially based on what city you live in or school district and state and all that sort of stuff. But the thing to point out here as well is that bullshit jobs can pay really poorly, but they can also pay really, really well. Whereas these high value roles generally speaking, tend to not pay super, super well, again, with the exception of doctors. And I can't think of another really good example. I think that's definitely the easiest one to grasp. I'm sure there are others out there, but it is. There's he probably, calls that one out specifically. I was thinking of firefighters, but I don't know how well firefighters are paid. And then you have some places in the U.S. where there are only volunteer firefighter fire True. departments. So <laughs> I can't think of another good example. But anyways. But that kind of speaks to the fact that society has no real means of reconciling economic value with any other type of value. So he also talks about um, unpaid labor in the home. So uh, a parent or caregiver who takes care of a child or there's elder care a lot of times, especially, I think, especially now. Um, But even just cleaning and cooking, all of that is unpaid labor and it's something that we spend our time doing there is value to having a clean sanitary living space there's value in eating good food there's no real way to measure the necessity of that or the impact of that or what it's worth in a dollars and cents capacity once again, the market has failed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because there's absolutely demand for it. It's just something that we all yeah. do. And when times get tough, it's something that still has to happen. Even if you are working two or right. three jobs to make ends meet, you still have to maintain your home or make sure your children are cared for or provide food for your family. Regardless of uh, you know gender, there are a billion studies that point yeah, to even if you're that. a single person with with no elderly parents or no children, I mean you still have to feed yourself and clean yourself and make sure you have a roof over yeah. your head at bare minimum. And all those things we value because we want to have a safe, comfortable place to call home, but there's 
there's no way for society to measure that impact or that worth in real dollars and cents ways that I guess that are like long lasting or continuous because there are studies and there's research done saying that like, oh, if we paid, it's normally through the lens of like, if we paid women for the labor that they do at home as if they were earning the wage of like the average housekeeper in your state or county or whatever, like this is what they would make. So there are ways that we can kind of extrapolate that value to put a dollar sign on it. But yeah, people try and compare it to the private industry as well, where you've like home health aides and nursing homes and you know but i feel like those prices are inflated because it's i mean we obviously don't live in a free market nobody in the world really does um and so you know their private entities have the ability to raise prices you know in a a disproportionate way but anyway yeah we can only kind um, of measure it in a way that we understand which requires a lot of like averaging and estimating and hypothesizing and everything like that there's no real firm yes, standard yeah. way to to do that not a uniform way and no. in the spirit of um bullshit jobs potentially being high paid we talk about some uh lower paid ones but there are as you pointed out they they run the uh the salary spectrum for sure and he also calls out graber also calls out um jobs with seemingly mission critical importance so like your your C-suite, your top level execs. Yeah, if you've ever worked at a company where they hire like a search firm for like a really important role because you have to have the right person and you're spending all this money and time and effort and you you know, you can't you can't just hire anybody off the street. Right. Um <laughs> that's what he's talking for about. For us it's uh, university presidents. This happens a lot. Yes. Usually a very lengthy process could be a year yes. or more. Yes, so those positions can be left vacant for months on end, a year plus, as you just said, and the organization keeps running. So even... Yeah, you may have like a a post-caretaker type thing, like an interim vice president or an interim president or an interim C-suite, whatever. But realistically, the, the permanency of that role is... It's not yeah, there. It's fleeting. And the, again, as Tiffany just said, the organization continues to chug along. So even though that uh, vacant role has a dollar sign attached to it in terms of the salary that right. that eventually hired person will make, we can't really articulate that value properly because the C-suite is, of course, you know, like the most if it's so valuable, important. the most important, the critical uh, roles that need to be filled so that the organization can function. But that's not true. It can function quite well without those positions being filled for lengthy gaps as needed to, you know, we're always told, you know, quote, find the right person, right? Um, But so we've assigned an economic value to that. But is that really reflective of the value that that role provides? Going back to the sort of inverse moral relationship um with the advent of capitalism work was seen as moral or virtuous just like any work doing work uh in general right i mean we we operate that as a society i mean we've we sort of talked about it last week but i mean the way that we look at um homeless people or people in low paying jobs or people who there's a universal societal disdain for those types of people, and I'm using air quotes there, 
because they're seeming seemingly have no morals or no virtue because you should just get up and get a job because it's the right thing to do is how we sort of articulate that in our modern society, at least in the US, but definitely I would say that's a pretty universal experience for for most people. In yes, the world. absolutely. And um, so under that or operating with that understanding that any level of work is moral or virtuous and therefore not working is immoral or unvirtuous. Is that a word? I don't know. It's good. Non-virtuous? Non-virtuous? I don't know. <laughs> trying, to, trying to work no, through that. I know that's wrong. Um, but uh, <laughs> operating under that system, even a bullshit job, which has no real value, can still be virtuous because it is work. And I know that I thought we brought up this example. I think we talked about it last week about the vice president. Yes. Guy. So as we discussed last week, yeah. um, there was a, a dad who had this VP status and he got his son, I think, but his child. Yeah, it was a son. um, Just for the sake of like filling a job, like the job had no role and the dad had no expectation that the son would like do anything either. He was just like giving his kid a title basically because he wanted him to be working. He didn't want him to have a gap or take time off or be lazy or whatever his dad's view was. He had to have a job. Absolutely. And it was like such a strange example because it was sort of unspoken, even though everybody knew that this kid's job was totally pointless. And this is like a classic nepotism example anyways, but (laughs) um, yeah, I think that happens quite a lot, particularly with nepotism. It's just like, oh, give this kid, you know, give give my kid uh, a role for the sake of of having a role and putting something on the resume or whatever. Um, Right. And this another good quote that I pulled uh, from the book was um, that because work itself is seen as moral or virtuous, that people have come to, quote, accept the idea that even miserable, unnecessary work is actually morally superior to no work at all. I think I'm guilty of that to an extent. I mean, as much as I would love to not work, I think um, we, we've talked about this, like even though we wouldn't work, we want to do volunteering or mm-hmm. something. We wouldn't just like sit around and chill all day. But I think I I felt that where it's like when you're not working um, and I only had that brief stint of being unemployed that, um, you know, you feel like anything would be better than not working. Um, so I think that's sort of drilled into us from a societal I'm definitely like that, especially um, on like a personal level. Like, I find it really hard to relax or just do fun things or I'm like, well, I have this fun thing planned Saturday afternoon. So Saturday morning, I have to be productive. I have to get things done. I have to, like, complete my chores or whatever. So I am very much of that mentality. I don't want to be like I'm working on that, but I'm wired such that I'm like, if if at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, I did nothing. Then I'm like, that day was wasted, even though that's not true. And I know that. I really struggle with that concept. I will say, however, though, that I I don't feel that way about society as a whole. Um, I recognize that like right. time off yeah. Why do we do and relaxing <laughs> is valuable, it is necessary, and I it ultimately leads to like more creativity and problem solving. And so like I see the bigger picture, yes. but for me personally. I don't have that expectation of other people. <laughs> yes. I agree. Because I don't, if so, like if somebody's just come back from vacation and they're lazy the following day, like I don't think they should be doing something yeah. productive. But I literally just got in last night from like a mini vacation 
And this morning I was like, I was very slow moving. I landed like nine o'clock yeah. last night. So it wasn't even that late, but it wasn't early. And so I'm like, I got to get up. So I started like putting together my grocery list and paid some bills and like this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I have to be doing something. And then I'm like sitting there thinking, why? Yes. Why? What's going to happen if I just lay in bed for like another right. two hours? Probably nothing. But it's like, I feel guilty. But I, again, also don't have that expectation for other people. So I think society has kind of drilled that into us a little bit, particularly when you live in, I mean, the States in particular is kind of like this, but I, I don't think it's exclusive to us either. I agree. I don't think it's exclusive to our country or culture, but it's definitely something that like, it's very pronounced yes, here. Though. I feel it a lot. I recognize it a lot. I am trying to allow myself time and space to do non-productive things. Even like the things I do for fun are largely productive. <laughs> like I literally produce a thing or like I can measure progress in some way. So I'm trying to do more. Of yeah, like you need to disconnect those things. Those, yeah. Do you remember when adult coloring books were like the thing? Probably like yes, six I do, or seven yeah. years ago, they like came onto the scene and everybody was into them. I have a few and I like, I view that as unproductive time. And so I never, what I consider yeah, indulge seemingly in doing them. But, right, yeah, yeah, but it's, I'm trying to like see that as more of an option now of like, I'm going to sit here just to do something and to do color, something. Yeah. And that's going to be what I do. I'm not like training the dog or cleaning the house or. I know we need to take our own advice about. We like, have no telling chill. People that can just sit and chill for an hour and watch Netflix. It's like, yeah, I can do that. But I also want to be putting together my grocery list or something while I'm doing it, you know, like. Or I'm like, well, this is a show I wanted to watch, and now I've accomplished that. Like I can't, like I see everything through that yes, lens. Yes, yes, yeah. That actually, problem. I won't watch certain things if I know I'm not going to pay attention to yeah. them properly and just need the background noise. Um, I'll put on something I've seen before or whatever, and then I can be on my phone or doing whatever. But if I need to like sit and watch something and focus on it, then I have to like pre mentally prepare for that. And we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but these societal expectations on work and. The morality of it, you know, we, we, it seeps into all aspects of yes. our life. And that's, I would say, a really good effect of bullshit jobs, which is sort of the last key thing we wanted to talk about. This is Graeber's words, right? The paradox of yes. modern work. Yeah, he uh, refers to yeah. that as a concept quite frequently. What's, what's being s spoken about here is that our sense of dignity and self-worth is caught up in what we do for our jobs. I mean, think about how in the U.S. when we ask people, like, what do we do? It's... That's a question that we ask where in a lot of other cultures and countries, that's not a typical get to know you question, you know, what you do for a living. A lot of people in the world and in the U.S. in particular, like those things are conflated. But the other side of the coin is that most people hate their jobs. So as such, you like have no sense of dignity and you have, or have a poor self. Low self-worth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've experienced that. I mean, that's been the theme of this podcast. <laughs> like we hated our job and. You know, we spent so many hours per week doing it and we wanted it to be a different way and we wanted things to be better, but we hated yeah. that job. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I've never hated anything more in my life, I don't think. And on the <laughs> flip side, now when I talk about my new job that I love, I also talk about how I contribute to society because that's what I want to be doing. And I'm not in like a yeah, we feel like we're actually doing something. way, but I do say like, I feel like I'm right. We work in like a te the tech industry and like education. We're not necessarily. I'm 
changing the landscape right. of the world. But we do believe that we are having. I some believe in the work that I am doing. Meaningful. I believe in what exactly. my organization is doing on a grander scale, and that's really important to me. I find value yeah, in sure. that, and so that's something that I mention when I talk about you know, this new role that I'm in or when family asks, you know, oh, how's how's the new job going or, you know, have you settled in? And like, that's always one thing I bring up and I don't, I don't do it intentionally really, but it is really important to me for people that are still in the position of hating their job and that being inextricably linked to their sense of dignity and self-worth, as Graeber says, it can put you in a really dark place. No, it absolutely can. And that's a great way to sort of finish on what we wanted to talk about from our perspective, which is what we think the effects of bullshit jobs are and what we think can be done about it. Because Graber sort of lays this out in a way that I didn't love. So we just decided to talk about it from our own perspective. But there are a lot of things, you know, or the the effects of 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 bullshit jobs are pretty pronounced. I mean people are unwell. Yes. He talks <laughs> I mean, very often about bullshit jobs are yes, pointless. That the uh, being in a bullshit job, especially as we said, you know, if you can find some personal value in a bullshit job, then this impact isn't as severe. But uh, Sean and I right. both agree that timing is key in that because if you're doing something for so yes. long that you aren't feeling good about, eventually you that will kind of take over. But if you can find a, a silver lining that keeps you going, then a bullshit job can be okay. But most people that are in a bullshit job, it's detrimental to their health and to their well-being. What was the time frame we put on that, by the way? Was it like six to 12 months is probably when you want to maximize? Like if you're, like, if you're in a bullshit job, try and get out within six to 12 yeah, months Yeah, I think most. it probably depends on how bullshit and how uh, motivated <laughs> you are what type of yeah, bullshit to yeah. get out of it. I was in my bullshit job that I've referred to many times throughout this entire podcast and this two mm-hmm. part series in particular for six months. I went through kind of like stages of grief with it almost like for the first That's month. That's right. Said, yeah. Well, for about two months, I tried really hard to just like make my job worthwhile. Once I acknowledged that that just really wasn't happening, I dove into my own personal projects more. And then I spent time trying to get out. And I I think I described it as being in like three acts that were each about two months. So for me, the whole ordeal was over within six months, but I was over it in about four. Yeah. By the time that I was like, I've done everything I can for this job. It's not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Nothing is happening. Um, I've done everything that I can for me as an individual (laughs) and like in this moment. And now I want to do something worthwhile for, you know, society at large. And that's when I, I I was looking for new work the entire time, but that's when I really kicked it into gear. I think that makes sense because I feel like my job was largely bullshit for two years when we worked together but it was really pronounced for like a good Mm -hmm. year and a half when we like when covid started and that was exhausting bullshit jobs are pointless and people are aware of this and so it becomes all consuming and mentally exhausting going back to that spiritual violence and that was the most spiritually violent (laughs) job i've ever worked in my life so i hated everyone and everything violent that like we as we have mentioned many times like we're still recovering from it over a year later Yes, I mean, we have a podcast yeah. about it. Like, <laughs> you know something affects you when you have to start a podcast about it. But yeah, I mean, he talks about this in a lot of different ways. And the other part too, I think, is that bullshit jobs make society very cyclical because 
at least in, in a capitalist environment. But this is also true, I think, in those social engineering, social engineered type environments. People need money mm-hmm. to live, like eat and shelter themselves, basic necessities. So they work and then they consume housing, food, whatever. And then they have to repeat that. And so when a bullshit job is created, nothing of tangible value gets created. So you're just working in this very cyclical hamster on a wheel type of yes. way. Yeah. And I know you called out the moral envy aspect. Do you want to talk about yes. that? Yes. So I really liked um, how he talked about this because this is something that I've thought, um, but I didn't ever really have the the words to describe like my confusion about this. But he talks about moral envy. So um, as we said, the system we operate under states that, you know, any work of any kind is valuable over no work right. at all. Right. But this there is an understanding that if you are not doing valuable work, then someone who is doing valuable work has the moral high ground, basically. So mm-hmm. you working in a bullshit job is better than the person who's not working at all, but it's not as good as someone who's actually doing a worthwhile job or a job that creates value right. for society. And this is where yes. this the the concept of how do I want to how do I want to say this? trying to not be super political but (laughs) also it's my podcast so whatever you can't help it yeah (laughs) the concept of uh, immigrants both working too hard and being lazy how that can like live together in one wildly incorrect stereotype (laughs) immigrants take the jobs that americans don't want to do that provide societal value think one of the most common examples is fruit pickers in like western the western united states and california and stuff but there's also this concept like America uh, from the U.S. in particular where immigrants will come in and steal our jobs that we aren't taking or live off of the government, which is impossible, um, or not pay taxes, also impossible. So, yeah, it's just one of those those types of things where, you know, it creates this animosity. Right, because people don't want to do those jobs, but they also are feeling morally inferior to people who do take those jobs back to the reconciling of economic value and our values because some people do not believe in immigration but can't deny the economic value of immigrants right exactly to a country when we start thinking about what can be done about the bullshitizing the world that's not a word i i know it's not a word i'm just trying to how, how can we eliminate the bullshit? <laughs> Graeber talks about minimizing go-betweeners and like administrative nonsense. And he has a bunch of figures and charts in the book as well from, I think he uses higher ed as an example again, particularly like administrative faculties. Like there's no reason for a dean to have five or six associate or assistant deans. And then for those people to have like four or five administrative staff below them, that's like 20 some people right yeah. there. Way more actually, now that I'm doing the math <laughs> in my head. But the, generally we agree. It's, we need to simplify the process, minimize the hierarchy, simplify the procedures, because if we start eliminating some stuff, um, then it will, you know, by default, eliminate unnecessary bullshit working Mm -hmm. jobs in theory. And uh, with that, minimizing middle management, we have talked a lot about how middle management, as you said at the start, was thought to be a way to increase efficiency, but it has turned out to be like the exact opposite it makes things wildly inefficient because those people need to be doing something but they have no actual responsibilities in a lot of cases and the work is done by uh, people and like lower level jobs uh, in terms of the hierarchy and then the ideas and big concepts are managed operated run by people in 
higher level jobs in the hierarchy. So the middle level is just really not necessary. There's that. And then leadership taking an active role in getting rid of some of this bullshit. So we were careful here because I, I'm worried that anyone in a leadership role will, th- will immediately think like layoff or elimination. And I don't think that's necessarily what needs to happen. I think it, it might involve some reduction in pointless roles. If you think about particularly if you have like multiple administrative roles, there may be some elimination of redundancy there. But I think the, the best thing to do would be to look at the role and its original purpose and subsequently redesign the role to not be bullshit. So this involves leadership taking an active role, something I know they don't right. like <laughs> That's the only way to sort of get it at its root. You can either eliminate the role, which is sometimes going to be necessary, or you can completely redesign the role. If you're creating new roles, making sure that they are not redundant and that they are serving a real purpose. And we've talked a little bit about this before, about being creative. Like you don't need to just copy paste an existing job and you can create a role that does a little bit of this, a little bit of that, or is only part time or whatever. So being creative in the roles that you establish is important as well to prevent um, more bullshit jobs from being created. Yeah. And we just sort of have some last concluding thoughts on the actual book itself. Obviously, we recommend reading it, but we wanted to call it in particular um, what we liked about the book. So for me, I liked the writing style and the humor. I think for the most part, it was relatively accessible for a pretty dense topic. I really like the way that, um, and I've read books like this before, where you stop and say like, yes, or, you know, you call something out when it's something you agree with or when it's something that is said in a way that you haven't been able to put quite into words. Um, so I like that that he was able to do that quite a few times in the book. Yeah, I totally agree. As I uh, said to you while reading and as I've said, I think, multiple times in these couple of episodes, at times I was reading and I felt very seen. And at times I was reading and I felt very angry about things. And I think that that is how I would summarize like my overall journey throughout the book. But again, definitely recommend. It was angry in a good way. It was feeling seen in a good way. But there are, of course, some things that we disliked about it. For me, I really actually didn't love how it got a little too academic or abstract in the end. I agree. Um, I just felt like it was a, a weird shift because the first really four chapters were not written that way. And then in the second half, it just felt like I was reading a professor's textbook. And I know this guy is like, he was a university yeah. professor, so I'm not shocked. But um, yeah, other than that, nothing really major that I disliked about the book. I I'd think say. that um, for me, I, I, I feel the same way. And I liked that the first uh, few chapters had a lot more anecdotes. I think that that's where I was more emotionally invested was in those anecdotes. Whereas the more like theological and abstract discussion that came in the latter half of the book it did require a little bit more thought that doesn't make it bad it just like it did seem like a a shift that came a bit suddenly there were a lot of things obviously that we agreed with as we've discussed throughout these couple of episodes the core concept for me i mean just all of it like the existence of bullshit jobs the problem with them existing the potential problems with them being eliminated and how that can be a bit more complicated maybe than we initially appreciate but for me the the morality and the um virtuosity of 
work versus non-work and how there's an inverse relationship to like the most societally value valuable work. Him explaining that was really helpful for me because that's something that I've not really understood my entire life. And now I certainly don't agree with it, but I have like a more academic understanding of why it is the way that it is. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely the just the core concept of the book was, was huge for me as well. But I really wanted to call out the role of leadership and society in the creation and proliferation of bullshit jobs as being sort of the main thing for me, because I didn't really think about, I mean, it's, it's, it seems so obvious that society was built this way or is currently structured this way, but I didn't really think about it from the historical lens, you know, with the advent of capitalism and all this sort of stuff. And then um, the attempts to move away from that, from these socially engineered societies um, with like communism and socialism. Um, so it was just, it was interesting to, to hear about that because it's just, I haven't heard it framed that yeah. way. And then in terms of things that we disagreed with, for me, there was nothing in particular that I thought that I, you know, was like this, I don't agree with this at all, but I would have liked to see more about sort of like the psychological impacts of a bullshit job. I mean, he talks about that with spiritual violence, but, um, you know, I thought that would have been more interesting to see in more detail, but also when people have the feelings of a bullshit job without having a bullshit job. Um, obviously, this wasn't the main purpose of the book, but I thought it'd be interesting to see, like, what are when people have the effects of a bullshit job, but they are in a role that's not bullshit, if that makes sense. I thought it would have been interesting to see more of that, but obviously not not quite the point of this book. Yeah, and for me, he, he states specifically, so I will give credit to that, he is very intentional to not include uh, solutions or ideas or ways to address things. It did leave me wanting those, but I, I respect and I understand why those aren't in there. Oh, I would be interested. I would have been interested in a sequel that also looked at like these same kinds of concepts through the pandemic and maybe eventually someday post pandemic. So that would have been interesting, but I would have loved to hear his perspective. Rip on that, yeah. David Graeber. We enjoyed your book. Absolutely. And let us know if you're going to read it. Otherwise, check it out um, and leave us a review on the podcast. Um, as you know, as we say almost every week, it helps us reach more listeners. Until then, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.